0: From Vinepair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter.
1: And I'm Joanna Sherino.
2: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. Wow. It's just we're
0: we're just marching through October, aren't we? In a blink. In a blink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a time. It's a fast
2: month. Oh. Is
1: 31 days, and yet it feels really quick.
2: Quicker than the others. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike February, which never fucking ends. <laughs> February,
0: 28 days. Of- yeah the worst thing ever. (laughs) No, uh, for anyone who likes February, who hurt you? Um, So, what have you been drinking, Zach?
2: A couple of things. Um, As alluded to on last week's podcast, I did indeed have cause to open up a nice bottle of sparkling wine. Um, Sorry, Mm -hmm. Joanna, but my Mariners... Wait, why? (laughs) Why? The Mariners beat the Blue Jays uh, in two straight games. It was uh, dramatic. We're not going to talk about what's happened since. Uh, has caused me to drink for other reasons, but yeah, so I opened up uh, a 2016 Blanc de Blanc from Traveri Cellars here in uh, Washington State, that was nice, got to drink a little uh, toast with my mom after a truly borderline miraculous comeback for the Mariners in the second game there, down 8-1 uh, in the sixth inning, and then came back and won, uh, so that was nice, uh, had a little bit of that, and had to immediately drive my children an hour and a half back home to our house, which was, you know, less oh. miraculous, but that's okay. Uh, and then the other thing I had recently uh literally had this bottle of been kicking around since before I even met my wife uh, a bottle of 2011 uh Demeziumrecht uh Riesling and uh which kind of was like time for it to be opened and uh we had some we got some takeout <laughs> it was time. Well you know I I, I Riesling can age for sure and it certainly could have gone longer but uh we were both kind of ready to give it a try and uh we had we got some takeout dumplings the other day and uh opened that bottle and interesting definitely Showing its age in in some ways, not in a bad way, but just in the way that Riesling can get kind of a little bit honeyed, Mm. a little bit nutty and, uh, you know, a little bit of a kind of that gasoline-y kind of smell, which I don't mind in Riesling. It was real good, tasty bottle of wine. So, yeah, just, you know, some nice bottles of wine. For now, we'll see uh, what what the next week brings. How about you, Joanna? What have you been drinking?
1: Yeah, so I, I had a few uh, nice things at the office last week. Um, Katie, just on a whim, decided to pop a bottle of um, Etoile Brut from Shandon that they had oh, sent nice. to her, I think, for her birthday, which was very nice. Um, and I'd never had this before. I think it's fairly fairly new. Um, but that was really good. And then Keith very graciously shared a, a lovely bottle of Chianti with all of us. Um, Castello de Dirada Chianti Reserva 2015. And we actually have another bottle of it right here that we're staring at. But I'll
0: be taking that home. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't think you had it last week. so I it, was, it was really good. Um, so, th- So those were the two standouts for me last week. Do you guys ever feel like you have to drink for the podcast? So you have something to talk about?
2: No, <laughs> I mean
1: <laughs> just just me. <laughs> do I ever no. drink
2: things with the podcast in mind outside of what we do on the Friday episodes? Occasionally, maybe. Yes, but no. I would say that you know drinking is a part of my life, as uh, mm-hmm. as you might expect, given you know this and everything. Uh, but there are definitely the weeks where I look back at my drinking and think yeah, it wasn't that exciting. I mean, Pretty that mediocre, is definitely yeah. uh, a reality. In some weeks, it's it's. You know, it's amazing. But uh, but uh no, I don't think I feel uh, like I have to, like, grit my teeth and have a drink just for the sake of the podcast. That's not really my relationship with drinking at this point in my life.
1: Well, it's not like we gritting my teeth and, and drinking something. Um, but definitely trying to seek out more interesting things. That, I think, is maybe um, to true. To talk about. Yeah, I
2: definitely yeah. think there are times when if, it, if I didn't have this podcast in mind on a weekly basis, would my drinking be slightly more humdrum? Possibly. But, you know, I fortunately have... Lots of um, interesting things that come across my uh, my transom, as it were. And um, even though mm-hmm. I don't get to go out and drink as much as the two of you, uh, you know, I do have some opportunities, which is nice, too. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: What about you, Adam?
0: So I had a really nice champagne last night. Uh, champagne Chavost. Uh, Rosé de mm-hmm. Seigneur. I can't speak French. man. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Uh, this was, is why
1: you like Italian
0: wines better. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> like a sort of a newish producer in New York. And uh, I had it at this restaurant called Fridae Nice in Brooklyn, which was great. And then I also had a really delicious martini this week at Bar Goto Niban, which was awesome. Those were probably the two big standouts for me in terms of like delicious drinks. <laughs> what
1: kind of martini was it?
0: So it was a martini with gin, sake, rose water.
1: Ooh.
0: And I think there was one other ingredient, but I can't remember. But it was very tasty. Nice. Like really, really tasty. So that that was like for me the highlight of my week. There can be good martinis out there. <laughs> <laughs> they all don't have to be $30 vodka martinis. <laughs> this is interesting to me because I feel
2: like rose water is one of those ingredients in cocktails that I, I have a hard time with. Like it's so intense. Um, I remember years and years ago when I was bartending, we had a drink that used it and it was like – the one drink on the cocktail list that I hated to make because you needed to be so precise about how much yeah. you use. Like we had to like, you know, it started out with it in a dasher bottle and then we had to get like a dropper. And this was not that kind of bar generally, but it was like one drop was fine. And two drops was like way too much too rose much. water mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't know if it was one or two, but it was in that ballpark and I've just never gotten that into it, but it's cool if people can make it work. It just, for me, whether it's in food or in drink, it's so intense, um, and can so quickly kind of take over anything else that I stay away from it. But I'm, it yeah. sounds like you liked it. So that's cool.
0: It was nice. It was nice. It was a really good cocktail. I, I like that bar too. I think Bar Goto and mm-hmm. the Lower East Side and Bar Goto and in uh, Brooklyn are are both really, really solid bars in the city. Yeah. Cool. Very, very cool. Um, all right. So you guys, we called this. We knew this was coming. Victory lap time. We called this years ago. But it seems the backlash has finally happened where some natural wine producers as well as purveyors are now anti-funk because (laughs) they have realized that what we said would happen is happening. And most consumers are now starting to think that natural wine is not natural unless it's funky. Mm -hmm. And guess what, people? Them's be the breaks. (laughs) Bed you've made, now lie in it. Exactly. (laughs) Or whatever it is. That that, is now happening. What do you guys think? Crazy, but also so fun to be right.
1: Why do you think this is happening now?
0: Because I think that a lot of them, because I think a lot, because I do think that a lot of people who are passionate about wine and natural wine also are passionate about clean wine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's getting out of control. And I think a lot of the wine that's being sold by uh, a few of the like more prominent importer distributors is wine that should, would have never been sold ten years ago. Like people would have been like, "Nope, this is shit." Like, try again. We can't sell this. This can't be in a book. Like, this is faulty wine. Mm-hmm. And now it's being sold very easily and at very high prices. And I think a lot of people are like, "This is just not okay." Like, we're we're literally selling crap. And I think a lot. And it's turning off a lot of consumers. I think. I think it's it's starting to fill up a lot of books. And I think there are now yeah I think buyers who are like I'm looking still for fruit and I can't find it anywhere mm-hmm. like it's okay if there was a little bit of bread on top of the fruit or like a little bit of VA or things like that that you could tolerate it's like it's like what everyone used to, like used likes to say about Italian wine right like that Italian wine all kind of has a little bit of VA but everyone tolerates it because that's kind of what makes it Italian mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. but now I think that it's literally everyone's just pouring kombucha people people are selling pet nets that aren't carbonated because something went wrong and it's but it's natural so it's okay yeah. Like basically natural really? is like yeah so natural is like the excuse for bad wine because it was natural right so like they right. can't help that things didn't go the way that it was supposed to go and I think there are now a lot of producers I mean a lot of buyers and consumers who are like that's not cool like I couldn't turn in a piece of work like your doctor couldn't be like ah, uh, you know, we botched this surgery, but, like, it was a natural surgery, so, like, <laughs> shit happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the, and, and you are having winemakers who have... You know, this has been coming, but, like, winemakers who have gone to school and gotten advanced degrees in this and done apprenticeships who, who are starting to call it out louder and louder, too, who are saying, you know, this is not cool. Like, right. you, this like winemaking is not just something you can do because you, you cannot... I'm, I'm sorry. You can't be, like a failed furniture designer or like a crochet artist that all of a sudden decides you want to make wine and think that you can buy a bunch of bulk grapes and stomp on them with your fucking feet. And, you know, and then all of a sudden you're going to make wine. Like, that's not what this is. There's like a true actually skill at art.
2: Crochet.
0: Artist. <laughs> yeah. Put a yeah. bird on it, man. This is in Portland, Oregon. I mean, it's all over Portland. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
2: Yeah, a lot of a lot of so, foot trod grapes in in Portland, Oregon. I can't. Yeah, you know,
0: yeah, everyone's foot trotting, man. Like, stop, stop foot trotting. Stop everyone making carbonic everything. Like, right. and I think that there's just a lot of backlash to it now. Like, everything can't be a pet now. Everything can't be. You can't make Piquette with everything. Like, just stop. Yeah, just stop. And I think that yeah, we're starting to see the backlash from from buyers who are who are saying like, there's got to be a better way, and they're starting to see that like their consumers want clean wine
1: yeah i mean i think we've gotten to this point because and we've talked about this before but when funky is what everyone is looking for or it's like the prerequisite for their wine choice and they kind of don't understand what it means and and just associate it with this very one note like specific flavor type of wine um that kind of flies in the face of all of these people who are working really hard to produce these really clean, yeah. natural wines. Yep. And, and I imagine that, like you said, that's, that's pretty frustrating for them. Um. So yeah, I, I totally, I get it. I get it happening now.
0: Yeah, I just think the damage has already been done. I'm curious what you think Zach, but I, I feel like the, it, this, if this would have been pulled back a few years ago, maybe, but at this point I feel like, this is the same as what's happened in the craft beer world with IPA, where it's just like the biggest hoppy flavor the possible. Hoppier, better, like, people yeah. just want to get slammed in the face with hops when it comes to IPAs, and I think that's the same with what people, what what the general consumer thinks of as natural wine right. is now funk. Yeah, and I don't see how that gets corrected in 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 this group of natural wine consumers' minds.
2: Well, I think the the complicating thing here too is you're facing perhaps a challenge on multiple dimensions for natural wine. One of them is what we're talking about here. And I think something that's important to note is when your selling point for natural wine, or at least the thing that consumers identify with is a flavor profile and an aromatic profile of funkiness. Well, the problem there is if you're trying to sort of Provide an argument for why a specific natural wine is better than another, or why this wine should cost you 50, 60, 70, 80 dollars a bottle in whatever setting, or more than that in a restaurant setting. But the dominant flavor is something that kind of anyone can get anywhere because it isn't really about the quality of the grapes, particularly, uh, especially when you're talking about things like Britannomyces or volatile acidity or whatever. You kind of run into this problem for producers and the people who sell wine, which is like, okay, but someone can get this other bottle that's also funky that's 20 bucks, and maybe yeah. is that crochet artist's foot-trod <laughs> bulk wine, and has a cool design, and costs 20 bucks on a shelf.
0: Yeah, a design that, like, your sister drew on the bottle. Yeah.
2: And does anyone really care <laughs> about the provenance of the grapes? Well, maybe not, if the thing they're looking for is this, you know, kind of macro flavor profile. And at least with IPAs, it was well understood, I think, that hops as the sort of dominant flavor agent in those beers are have a price, and the more hops you put in, the more expensive the beer might have to be. That's obviously a little reductive. It doesn't simply boil down to that, but that's, I think, how consumers might have thought about it. I think the other problem is you're perhaps also getting pushback from not just buyers, not just uh, purveyors, but also possibly drinkers themselves. Because in the same Mm -hmm. way that some IPA drinkers, obviously IPAs are still very popular. Big hoppy IPAs are popular. The A certain segment of craft beer drinkers, certainly the craft beer media, et cetera, started to push back and brewers themselves against the notion that the only way to make craft beer was to kind of load everything up with hops. And I think you're seeing yeah. this pushback from within uh, natural wine. This is why when we started talking about this on Slack, I think Josh you know, referred to it as natural wine needing its own tail. You know, This is a, a thing where you have the people who perhaps once loudly championed wines that are undeniably funky are now themselves saying, well, actually, we maybe need to look at, you know, clean winemaking and fruit expression and aromatic purity and all these things. And yeah, we still want you to make it with, you know, minimal sulfur and, you know, from biodynamic grapes, et cetera, but we also want the wine to be clean. And I think those are admirable goals personally for my own flavor preferences and stuff, but that's putting Mm -hmm. a much bigger, you know, burden, or it's making things harder on the producer, because making clean wine is harder than making flawed wine. I mean, if it was easy to make clean wine, people wouldn't make flawed wine, generally speaking. And so I think that we are seeing this problem twofold, right, The the category has exploded. And it's brought a lot of people in who maybe don't Mm -hmm. exactly know what they're doing. And at the same time, you have the sort of some of the tastemakers within natural wine circles, starting to sort of reject what they a year or two or three Embraced, and that's a whiplash effect for producers and perhaps for consumers most of all. But it's also a sign of a of a sort of unstable uh, ecosystem in a way.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you you mentioned this before, Adam, but I also think at a certain point, drinkers, I mean, this happened for myself, like realize that it just tastes bad. Yeah, yeah. like these wines just taste bad. And then, like you said, Zach, it, it's kind of hard to justify making the jump to a more expensive bottle that will taste better. So instead, just like kind of rejecting the category. Like, why would I spend so much more on something if you assume that it's going to taste funky anyway? Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, and also, I think it's not even just that it tastes bad. It's that it's fatiguing. It's not the only thing people want to drink. It's I think it's not that, yeah. you know, people who like natural wine are like, I will never have another funky wine. But it's like... I don't want just funky. Like I want other options within the natural wine sphere. And obviously they do exist and have existed, but so many people have been brought into the natural wine camp as consumers by people talking about the the funkiness, the, the strangeness. They're like, oh, you'll never have a wine like this. And like, that's a cool selling point at first. But at some point, I think most people are like, you know, frankly, you said it before, Adam, they're like, well, why aren't I just drinking kombucha, which is cheaper? Like, why am I paying yeah. <laughs> big money for wine that doesn't taste like wine and the novelty has probably worn off on me.
0: Yeah, I I just think again, I there there's amazing stories of people who come into wine from a variety of different places in, in terms of making it, right? But I do think that also the general like if you were to to make a satire about natural wine and like what it's become, the general satire would be like, this wine is made by someone who left a different job, probably crochet artist <laughs> or, or professional quilter in order to be a winemaker. This is their first vintage. It's super funky, but don't worry. It's natural. And they're and they're just trying really hard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that that's also that's like very upsetting to people who, You know, this happens in every movement, right? This happened in art too, where there was a lot of artists that were like, "Wait, what? Like, we're we're championing art that doesn't seem to have any technique and doesn't seem to like be thinking about any of the past." Like, this happens in every movement. Happens in fact. Like, we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but I think the 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 sort of the the problem with this is how powerful the bacterias are that can get into the wine when it's not made well mm-hmm. and how and how dominant they become.
1: Yeah.
0: And it just creates this very uniform flavor no matter where the wine is made in the world. Yeah. And that is it's just unfortunate, but it is – that's kind of the cool thing about making alcohol actually is that there's this bacteria that everyone has to kind of fight against and figure out how to defend against. And there's volatile acidity that have to figure out. It's like there's, there's true skill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when it does come in, it doesn't matter if you made the wine in, you know, from Premier Cru Vineyards in Burgundy, though they would never do this. They would freak out. Mm-hmm. But if that's where you got your fruit from or you got your fruit from Virginia, you got your fruit from Napa, or you got your fruit from, you know – Tasmania, right? Like this is what happens to the wine, yeah. and I think we're all starting. To, I think there's a lot of this this rejection because people are saying, "Wait, so if this wine tastes the same funk as that wine, but this wine was twenty dollars and that wine is fifty dollars at the shop, and one was from France and one was from Australia, but they taste the same to me, then what? What's the point?"
2: Right. Well, and I also think there's, you know, you talked about this being a sort of thing that we see in movements or sort of outsider movements within whether it's, you know, art, fashion, wine, whatever. And I think wine in particular has some very similar experiences in the last few decades, because there's always been a sort of counterculture in wine pushing back against the dominant style. And it was, Mm -hmm. you know, people pushing back against, you know, in the in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was people saying, wait a second, why is, why are these sort of um, relatively, you know, sort of tart, uh sort of medium to light-bodied wines from europe the the dominant fashion when here in California whatever we can get more ripeness more flavor we can use new oak uh in a you know in a in a sort of uh, prominent way and produce these very kind of pleasurable wines and then you had people push back against that or people kind of set out to do the opposite or something very different than that and then those people perhaps went I don't know if they went too far, but then there became a sort of fetishization of high acidity and you know picking grapes really early and sort of seeing that you know, there being a, a movement that saw that as being the the sort of pinnacle of winemaking. And in all these cases, the I think best producers, the best, the sort of longest-lasting people within these movements, recognized that both they had a point, but also the pre-existing landscape wasn't completely fucked. And it wasn't a complete joke. And there were reasons why people did things the way they did. And in this case, I think a lot of producers are like, oh, shit, there's a reason people have used sulfur for hundreds of years, because it's a hell of an effective preservative. And that doesn't mean that you should go hog wild with it. And it means that perhaps for some producers, um, using as little as possible or maybe finding other ways around, you know, other ways to preserve their wine besides using sulfur are, are still things that they see the value in. But the sort of revolutionary zeal tends to sort of be beaten out of people because as you've both pointed out, making wine is really fucking hard and making wine consistently year in and year out that's good, that's shelf stable, that people want to drink is not an easy thing to do. And tying one arm behind your back technique wise is perhaps not a great idea, especially if you're not very, very experienced. And it's why I think you see some of the most prominent and most successful people in this space are people who have come to whatever we consider natural wine or low-intervention wine or whatever with a lot of experience already. They understand what they need to do, what they can do, and what they can maybe not do um, that is no longer necessary or that they can work around. And it's the people who are the sort of foot soldiers in the revolution, and maybe this is a pun about foot tread and grapes, who in the end kind of get in and then find themselves... Overwhelmed Because the process of making wine is really fucking hard. It's not something that anyone can do, whatever their, you know, sort of belief in themselves might say.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but I and yes, and I agree with all of that. And mm-hmm. I, I just think that, you know, as as the category has expanded and. Like Adam said, we're seeing these wines on menus Mm -hmm. and more people are exposed to them and are trying them as part of this movement and then rejecting it, right? Because it doesn't taste good. Or if these Mm -hmm. are the wines that they're exposed to and then they don't like them, they're like, well, natural wine is a stupid movement and these wines are bad. Yeah. Like that's not good for the move, whatever, quote unquote, the movement either. So I see them, you know, the people who are spearheading this or really passionate about it, feeling... Like what's happened to natural wine, especially recently, has been kind of counter to its own counter movement.
0: Yeah. Well, and as we've said before, and we will say again, if it, it's just if to most consumers, natural doesn't mean what all of the evangelists think it means. Right. So what they think it means, what they they want it to mean is, you know, amazing farming practices that take care of the land, that honor the land, that are, you know, as organic, that are organic or biodynamic, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that leave something for the future, which I think we can all get behind. And then minimal intervention in the cellar, allowing sort of the grapes to speak for themselves, as it were, those are all really good things. But the problem is, if instead what natural wine has become is known for a flavor, right? the flavor can be created by larger brands. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's what I think is people are, even though podcasts like ours and publications like ours have been saying this forever, I think they're starting to become a realization from some of the leaders in the movement that that's the case, Mm -hmm. that it's not that hard to infect a bunch of industrial tanks with Brett Mm -hmm. and tell people that this is a natural style wine.
1: Natural style wine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's a very quick turn of phrase that most consumers won't even pay attention to. They'll glaze right over. Oh, natural style. Cool. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have bigger brands creating these wines that taste like it with natural sounding names that, you know, is completely the antithesis of what this movement is supposed to be about to be, yeah. yeah well and, and it's so, like I, I, you see why. the
2: you can see the you can see this, the bottles on the shelves right now right they're kind of opaque yep. they're often like really bright colors like not just the the labels but the wines themselves are kind of yeah, vivid very juicy you know yeah. they're and they and they sort of they they have that all the iconography that surrounds natural wine and it's as to not to you know hindsight is 2020 although i think for all of us it was pretty clear when this was you know picking up steam that that's where some of the people who welcomed anyone on the bandwagon who wanted to talk about natural wine and champion it maybe went wrong because once you start to sort of accept everyone under the tent regardless of what the wine tastes like you know because you're like well it's natural so it's just a natural expression of whatever you kind of no longer, you now have lost the ability to say, wait a second, like, yeah, okay, you didn't use any sulfur. And yeah, okay, the grapes are organic. But like, what the fuck is wrong with your wine? Like, this is like, yeah. this is maybe arguably not wine. I'm not sure what it is. But it's not wine as the way we in the way we think of it. Mm-hmm. But it's packaged like wine. It's talked about like wine, it's made from grapes, it's got alcohol in it. So like, we can't really deep keep on that. And, you know, I, I can't, lie there's a part of me like i think for both of you that's a little like you know as we said before like it's what you did like you you uh sowed, now no now shall you reap but um it is, it is interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years where things go um, and whether you start to see more and more of these people who were uh, evangelists for natural wine, who were prominent producers really move away from natural as a term. I think we will yes. see that. I think we will see, unfortunately, migration into low intervention as a term, which I don't love either. Mm. You can read my piece about it on vinepair.com. You might have heard of it. Uh, but in general, I think that you are going to see people... Kind of trying to abandon this terminology because they've they've realized that they no longer can control it. It is Frankenstein's monster.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah. And with that, told you so. <laughs> told you so.
1: You're such a told you so person, Adam.
0: You know, only on the <laughs> podcast. Actually, I, I, I don't Not think in I have, No, <laughs> ask Naomi. She, she's always right. I never right. <laughs> but I mean, you know. This one feels good. Hey, take the victory <laughs>
2: laps when you get them. That's what I say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And with that, I'll, I'll see you both Friday. <laughs> Check you back here. See you, natural one. <laughs> Have a great week. Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So...